Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. I've seen so many shows throughout the years um, and I saw the uh, parade show at the mm -hmm. Wiltern Theater in Los Angeles. That was like one of the only u.s versions yeah, of yeah. that show yeah. um yeah. it was really yeah. something and uh so when you became immersed in this world um how did your relationship with prince evolve well i i had an extraordinary advantage for two reasons first of all um i had had a career in music I was older than anybody else in the band. I was older than him. I was older, you know, Wendy and, you know, Wendy Melvon, she was like 20 years old. I'm in my early 30s and by, you know, early 30s and dog years and in, in pop music years, that's, you know, I'm the old, I'm in, you know, I'm an old man. But I, I had had that benefit of having a career in music um, prior to that. And I played an instrument Prince couldn't play. So, so much of the relationship was in, obviously informed by that, because whatever it was that specifically he might want me, and my section mate, Matt Bliston, was known as Atlanta Bliss on trumpet, who was from Pittsburgh. We had known each other. We had gone to school together. And all of these bands in Pittsburgh, Matt and I had been playing together. So when, when Prince asked me about, I want to add a trumpet, I just said, I got the guy. Trust me. Matt came in, Prince said, cool, this is it. Um, he could not pick up the guitar and show, this is what I need, or sit behind the keyboard and say, this is what I need, or pick up the bass behind the drums. When it came to us, he would have to actually articulate it in a way that was different for him. And not knowing really anything about the limitations of even what could or could not realistically be done on a horn, he was learning too. And it was fascinating for me and Matt to be in a position where whatever it was that he was gonna learn about what he could hear and do with these instruments had to be realized by us. And it was like, you know, we can kind of teach him the way we want to, <laughs> you know? Um, and whether we really did that, you know, purposely, but that was going to come out that way because he was literally everything that he was going to realize musically was either going to be informed and, and also limited 
by what it was that we could do. So it was it, it was it was it was fun from from that standpoint to be his lab rat, you know, because he would come up with an idea or a notion from time to time that we would then have to kind of uh, translate into what actually can be done on a saxophone and a trumpet as a horn section. You know, it's like if he's like singing us a line at one day and he's like singing melismas and stuff like that, it's like, uh, 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 Prince, hold on now. You know, we can't do that. But this is what we can do to serve the same purpose, you know. And as he became more confident about, you know, what he thought he could do with us, then it, then it really became fun, you know. So that that was that was what was was what was interesting and fulfilling for me. It wasn't about whether or not any specific piece of music was something that I was going to go home and, and want to listen to. I wasn't in Prince's band. Prince, Prince, you know, was very realistic about this. He didn't pay us to like his music. He paid us to play it. You know, there were always musicians in his band. There were always those over the years that were musicians that just thought they had died and gone to heaven because they were playing with Prince and Prince's music. I wasn't that. I had no, nobody has more respect and admiration for the musician that he was than me, because this was a remarkable musician on his best days. He was a brilliant musician, but I could give a rat's ass about Prince, the persona that was never of any interest to me whatsoever. It was beneficial to me for one reason. It was hugely popular. So he could pay me more than I could receive if I was working for a jazz musician that might be on his level. You know, I played with musicians that were every bit as, as great in their own genre and what they did as Prince. Just didn't pay as well. <laughs> you sure. know? There, there, is a, there is an aspect of commerce that's involved. And Matt and I are looking at each other the whole time we were Prince and we're laughing and said, how the hell did we end up here? You know, and it was like, you know, this is fun. We're going to get what, you know, I got what I wanted out of it. And then I was done with it. I was say, thank you very much. I loved it. Said, see you. Bye. I'm out of here. That, that's one of the things that always uh, really struck me about you, Eric, was, you know, you weren't some kind of syncophant, uh, you know, and you, um, and, and I often wondered if that was part of the uh, recipe for your longevity with Prince, you know, was the fact that, uh, you know, you really uh, maintained your head, you know, and, and brought something to it that was a little different from what he was accustomed to, uh, yeah. but also weren't just going to kiss his ass all the time. I'm, I'm, I suspect, I suspect it did. And, and I'm, um, you know, there are other musicians that, that um, played in his bands years later that had very much the same attitude. And I think the same relationship with him also. So I, I was, I was hardly unique as that I may have been one of the first you know, because regardless of what the, the the other members of the revolution, what their attitudes was, everything about you know they had they had come up homegrown with Prince. So me and Matt Bliston were, were really the first ringers that came in from the outside. So, um, like I say, as the years went by, 
there were always some musicians that came in and just like, oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm with Prince. And, but I think there were more, more musicians that looked at it kind of like I did, like here's, here's an absolutely wonderful opportunity. I would be foolish not to take advantage of this. I'm going to get what I want to get out of it while I'm serving his, you know, vision, which is what it is. And I'm going to get, you know, some really cool experiences out of it. And I'll be here as long as it's meaningful for me and for him. And sooner or later, when I decide to go, I'm going to go. And I said, love it. Thank you very much. Now I'm on to the next. So, yeah. You know, following him from the very beginning, Eric, uh, one of the things that was really fascinating to me was, you know, as synthesizers came in in the early 80s and supplanted horns to a great extent, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't feel like very many people could get it right in terms of having the keyboards really do that where you would say oh I, you know i don't super miss the horns yeah. but with the way prince approached it especially you know through like a 1999 album and in that the way he brought the sound of the synths and the arrangements of the synths i thought he did it in a way where i was like wow this is really working in place of horns and oh absolutely like for the first time like this guy gets it and he's making it work in place of horns so yeah. then when he did that and did it so fantastically and then went back and got real horns because uh, it felt like, you know, he had done what he could do with that. And he really wanted to experiment and explore actual horns. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you to find a story about that because you're, you're absolutely right. And, and that was that was one of the things that distinguished, you know, when people talk about the Minneapolis sound, you know, what that is. I always thought, you know, obviously when you talk about Minneapolis sound, it's Prince. But what was it about Prince's sound that was that was the most distinguished, you know, distinguished was it the way he used keyboards more than anything else. And you're absolutely right. And 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 when I came in, there were those people around him that were like, said, oh, he's actually getting a real saxophone player because the rep, you know, the, the rep on Prince was that he didn't want real horns because to him that was passe. It was all about, you know, I can do this. With this is the modern sound, horns are like corny. They're old. You know, he could have gotten Maceo Parker to play with him. You know, he certainly knew Maceo was, you know. He did whatever. later. later yeah, did, yeah, absolutely. Well, it, and, but you're right. When years later, after um, I was no longer, you know, in his band, I was now recording for Paisley Park on my own, which was the single most significant part of my relationship with Prince was the fact that he gave me the opportunity to make my own music. And, and more than anything else, I will always be grateful to him for that. Um, but, but years later, um, he now had his next horn section that was known as the horn heads. And it was a big, it was five horns, two trumpets, trombone, um, two saxophones. And they're all friends of mine that the straw boss of that section, Mike Nelson, was the trombone player who went on to do a lot of things with Prince years later. I mean, they told me you know, a lot of things as the years went by. The first time that I heard that section play with Prince was at a club gig at, at, at his club Glam Slam. And they played 1999. And when they played it, for the first time, you hear a five-piece horn section playing the synth part from the beginning bah, bah, bah. and I sat and I said oh my god 
this is horrible. I said, oh my God, Prince is going to be his own Las Vegas act. You know, and when I got to know Mike Nelson or the guys in that section, I, I asked Mike, I said, please tell me that wasn't your idea. And he said, oh, hell no. He said, no, Prince was basically, I got real horns, I'm going to use real horns. I said, that's funny to me because real horns should not be playing what the horn purpose was in 1999. No, that's, it's supposed to be a synthesizer taking the role of a horn section. But once you make it a horn section, I'm sorry, it sounds corny, you know. Now, me and Matt would would play that line, but since it was just two of us, we could kind of play it underneath the synth. So it actually just gave the synth a little bit of a tonality that maybe gave it a little bit more authenticity, but it didn't, you know. And, and you know, now, once again, what the Hornheads did with Prince, you know, they did a whole lot of great stuff with them years later. So I'm, 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 this is not a criticism of them or what their value was to Prince's music. Um, but it was just funny to me that at that, I said, you know, Prince was right the first time. There's certain songs that, you know, I'll use these synths to, to, to serve the same purpose of the horns. But once you really put horns on this, no, that, that, you know, that, that's, the way, that's the way it should have been. So. Yeah, for the most part, I mean, he knew what he was doing in terms of when to use a synth and when to use the ho actual horns. And I think, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how did the uh, the Madhouse project uh, evolve? Uh, did you kind of initiate that, or did it no. was it Prince's brainchild, or that was that was entirely Prince? Um, we had come off the road from the from the parade gigs. We'd been in in Europe and and Japan, and he had already made the decision to, um, you know, Wendy and Lisa, you know, they were going to be leaving the band. He'd already made the decision that he wanted Sheila E. to replace Bobby as a drummer. So all this is going on. Um, he calls me one afternoon and just says to me very casually, I think it was a, think it was a Sunday afternoon, I'm sure. Something. He says, um, my dad is over at, at his house. And he said, um, do you want to come over and play some jazz with us? You know, I, you know, now I could have said, friends, um, I think I'll pass on this one. Have fun. But there was a part of me that says, you know, understands that even though he's asking, he's basically saying, I need you to get over here now. You know, so I took it. I, I took it that way. I said, all right, cool. I'll be over in a while. But this is once again, Paisley Park had not been was in under construction. Um, Prince had a recording studio in the basement of his house. Went over to his house. His father had already left. So Prince is there. Susan Rogers is down in, in, in the basement in the studio. There's a grand piano in the living room of Prince's house. And I said, Oh, well, what do you want to do? Keep keep. He sits at the piano and he doesn't really, you know, Prince wouldn't sometimes explain what he was doing. He would just do it. So all of a sudden I got my horn out and he's playing the stuff on the piano. And he said, okay, here's how this one goes. 
can you explain the chords? And I got, I got music, I got music paper with me. I'm writing down chord changes. And he says, here's the melody idea that I have for this. So I said, oh, all right, all right. This. And literally we went to like two or three songs and I'm writing all this stuff down and maybe I said, okay, this is it. And I'm still, he hasn't said what this is, what, you know, what this is, what we're doing. So I figured, okay, well, obviously he wants to record. He says, Susan's waiting for us downstairs. Let's get this done and let's go down. And all right, it's a session, right? Go down. Well, we went downstairs. The tracks had already been done for these three songs, you know? So I was like, oh, it's just me overdubbing what he wants me to do to these tracks he's already got done. And he had played all the drums, all the keyboards, and the bass. There was no guitar, but he had done everything. All right? So I got this melody line down, and he's basically producing. He said, okay, here's the melody. Here's the space for, for your solo, whatever. All right, here's the solo, blah, blah, blah. We're done. And I'm looking at it, I'm going to say, okay, well, we, we, had, we had done instrumental stuff before. So, you know, that wasn't that unique. But this was a little, a little more formed, at least in his mind. I don't really recall when he started referring to this as Madhouse. Might have been that day, it might have been the next day, because he said, I'll have some more stuff tomorrow. Come back, then we get more stuff. Literally, by now, he's saying, okay, here's, here's the thing. This is going to be our album. We're going to call it Madhouse. It's going to be you. But, and he said, I've already talked to the record company. I want to talk to Warner Brothers, and they're down with it. So we're, we, we're good to go with this. So this is what the idea is. And then he started explaining to me, I don't have anything to do with this. You understand? And I said, all right, well, how is that going to work? And he said, my name isn't going to be anywhere connected with this. The only name that is going to be on the first album is Madhouse. My name wasn't even on the first album. It was just Madhouse. All music written, arranged, performed by Madhouse. Recorded at Madhouse Studios, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That was his inside joke to me. And at the and when the album came out, the funniest thing to me was up in the corner was a little phrase that said "New uh, New Directions in Garage Music" or something like that. That was his nod to Miles, because three albums in the three albums in the late sixties of Miles had a little thing at the top that said. Directions in Music by Miles Davis. So that was Prince's All These Inside Jokes. This album was done in three days. That was it. We're done with it. And he basically hands me a cassette and he said, here's your album. Now, I'm sitting there and I said, wow. You know, I mean, this is going to be the first legitimate where, where I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the star of this, ostensibly. I'm the lead voice. And I think this is going to be great. You know, and, and the fact that he was so excited, and obviously, uh, I, I mean, before anything else, just the extraordinary compliment from a musician of this caliber that he wants to do this project with me. 
be absolutely honest, he could have done that Madhouse album without me. Instead of my horn being the lead voice, his guitar could have been. And it probably would have sold more records, you know, if it had been just a guitar-driven album. But the fact is, is that he was excited enough about wanting to play this music and, 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 and use it as a platform for future music is an extraordinary compliment, as I, as I can imagine. So I got this cassette of music, and the album was released, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and basically, I had the lie to every interview that would ask me, he said, what was Prince's involvement? And I said, none. Prince went so far as to construct um, and invent the musicians for the album. He said, when it comes time, he said, these are the names of the musicians. And he gave me these names. And he said, and I said, well, and he said, the, the story is, is that you brought the project to me with these musicians that you had been playing with when you were living in Atlanta. I said, oh, terrific. Okay. So after the album came out, we were now in Europe on the Sign of the Times tour. Prince designated me as the primary spokesman for that tour, for all of the interviews. But it was basically around the Madhouse thing. So basically, I look at the sign of the Times tour, and I said, that's the tour that I lied myself all through Europe. And of course, naturally, there was a writer from Atlanta, a music writer, we did an interview with. And he said to me, he said, Eric, I got to be honest. I've been living in Atlanta my whole life. I know this music scene upside and down. Nobody has ever heard of these guys. Where do they come from? And I'm like, um... You know, I'm on the phone. Uh, so, so, got, got a bad connection. I think we're going to have to ring off. You know, I'm, you know, it was like wink, wink, nod, nod. Everybody knew Prince, you know. The, the, you couldn't really listen to that music and, and not hear it as, as Prince's music. So, you know, that, that was, so that's how, that's how that began. I imagine there was some extent, and maybe you can uh, share this, Eric, that you informed Prince uh, to some extent, maybe on some jazz artists and some different music that he maybe otherwise wouldn't have been exposed to through the years? Yeah. Um, he certainly was aware of Duke Ellington because his father, John, was, you know, grew up at a time when Duke Ellington was God. So Prince heard Duke Ellington around the house, but I specifically gave Prince. Um, the infamous Duke Ellington at Newport, 1956, with for, for jazz fans that know that. It's uh, Diminuendo and Crescendo in Blue with the 27 blues chorus played in the middle by the saxophonist Paul Gonzalez. And it's one of the swingingest things in the world. I mean, it's great. I gave Prince that album. He absolutely loved it. I gave Prince Love Supreme by Coltrane, which he really dug. Um, Gave him a bunch of, you know, there, there were certain Miles Davis albums that he was aware of. He loved Jack Johnson and some of the, you know, other. But he really wasn't, I think, that familiar with, like, um, stuff like Sorcerer and Nefertiti, you know, the quintet stuff, some of the more really hardcore, um, more abstract, hardcore jazz albums. I would give him some of those from time to time. Um, I'm, I must also say that at the same time, you know, um, Wendy and Lisa, 
had a huge, huge influence on Prince also in the music that they were giving him. And from, from a, a conceptual basis, um, there certainly was, was a creative synergy that existed between Prince and, and Wendy and Lisa at that time, which was very, very deep and very legitimate. Um, I never thought that my, my musical relationship with Prince was really on the conceptual level as much as it was just on the performance level. Because I was the guy that could play the instrument the way that he couldn't play it, you know, as a, as somebody that already had somewhat of a solo voice. Um, because here's the thing: Madhouse was not a collaboration, at least that first Madhouse album. Yes, I mean he's asking for input on 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 maybe how to phrase a melody, and the solo what on the solos or whatever. But basically, it was still all his music, and all the final decisions about it were made by him. And the unfortunate reality, and, and I, I hate to say this, but I've, I've said this before, and I don't mean this as a critique of the music, because I'm not going to say this music wasn't good. I, I've got an ego, too. I don't think Prince and I could make music that couldn't be, quote, unquote, good. But once again, people who want to get into Madhouse and gush about Madhouse, I said, I'm very grateful and I appreciate the fact that you really dug that first album. I wish I did. You know, we do an album in three days. And, you know, a lot of people said, well, what's it, what's it like to, to, to be involved in that? I said, you know, you're trying to keep up with him because the dude moves fast. And that's great because, you know, there's a part of me that, that likes that. Because if you're going to have a solo with Prince on, on a song, whether it's Man Out or anything else, you need to throw something against the wall real quick because he doesn't have the patience to listen to you go through the motions to try to get to where you're going. You need to get there quick. And more often than not, whatever is the first thing that comes out of my horn is what he's going to use. So you better try to make it something that you're going to be able to live with. So that's basically the whole mentality. I got to just like, I'm just like, okay, Prince, what do you need? How do you want this melody phrased? I can do it this way. What if I do it in Prince? Yeah, do it, bend, bend that note. Keep that note straight. Okay, cool. Are we cool? Is it cool? Yeah. Okay. Get to the solo. I said, Prince, is there any particular approach you want? And maybe sometimes he would say, yeah, give me something a little bit more underhanded. Or, you know, might use a phrase like that that was completely up to interpretation. But other times he would just say, no, man, just hit it. Just hit it. Whatever. So that's it. Okay. So I'm sitting back and I'm, I'm just thinking... Am I in tune? Am I playing the melody the way it's supposed to be? Is the solo cool? And it's like, it's for him to make that decision. Prince, if you want me to give, do another run on that solo, I can come at it from a different way. He said, no, that's cool. That's what I like. I, I, I'd like, move on. Next. That's it. I don't have the luxury to be able to even sit back and, and really listen to this music, you know, from any kind of, of, of a detachment. I'm just listening to it because in the manner of that I need to in order to perform it in a manner that is going to hopefully serve what he's hearing in his head. So by the time the thing is done and he's given me a cassette and said, okay, here's the album. I don't have a clue what I've done. Now only do I have the luxury to then sit back in my own home and to whatever degree it's possible for me to be detached from something that I have just been involved in. 
which, you know, and I don't know how successful I can ever really be at that, but all I can do is try to listen to it as something that I would have gone out and bought sight unseen and just listen to it as music. And after a while, I'm listening to it, you know, because I have to get over, first thing I'm going to listen to in every song is me. Am I, you know, is this cool? Do I like the way I play that? Is the solo okay? Fine. Okay. I can live with it. We're cool. Now I start to just listen to it as a piece of music. I got to tell you, after a while, listening to this album, I came to the conclusion, you know something? This might be some really cool music. It just isn't anything I'm particularly interested in listening to. And all I can say, you know, on any given day, Prince could come in with a bunch of music that I might love. I said, oh, man, this tune is great. Can't wait to get at it. But there's no guarantees because he's not making, you know. So the thing is, the funny thing, when you think about it, he's doing this ostensibly in order to provide this opportunity for me, which it was. You know, and, and I, you know, I, I have to respect and, and, and be thankful for that. But the thing is, when you're in that process with him, never once did he ever stop and say to me, Eric, by the way, are you digging this? Because he wouldn't. That wouldn't have even occurred to him. You know, it, it, you know, and, and if he had, my answer would have been, Prince, let's just keep at it. Everything's cool. Let's keep at it. Because I don't know that I could have given him any answer that would have, you know, had any insight with what was, <laughs> what was actually going on. Um, so that, that, you know, and the funny thing is, I read about recording sessions with, with, with Miles, with Castle Chicory and Joe Zavanul and all these, you know, icons, these heroes of mine playing the music of, of the recordings of Bitches Brew. And they would say afterwards, they said, I came out of the studio just thinking that was a bunch of horseshit. And then they, but in that case, they all said, when I finally heard, then I, then I, I got it. I said, oh my God, this is, you know. So unfortunately, it, it didn't quite work out that way for me. So, you know, um, I mean, I, 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 I got friends of mine, you know, jazz castles, the, the, the uh, late jazz trumpeter Roy Hargrove, who I'd gotten to know, he used to tell me he freaking loved that album. You know, and I'm sitting, I'm just, I'm glad you did. You know, thank you. But, you know, just, it, it just on that given day, those songs just didn't really do much for me personally. So, yeah. The draw. yeah. Well, it's fascinating to hear that perspective, and I appreciate it. Um, and, and I can definitely relate and see that for sure. So, you know, you, you performed on so much material. Um, what were like a couple that you really do feel pretty great about? You know, uh, you weren't thrilled with Madhouse, but what are a couple that you really feel you nailed it and you really appreciate it? Um, hmm, good question. I mean, it, it, fun, funny thing is, is, is of any recorded solo that I did, um, High fashion on the family album, which was in, which is interesting because it was like one of the first things I ever did. I said, "Yeah, it was the best." It all went downhill after that, <laughs> you know. Um, mainly because mainly because this was against my ego. It was one of the longest solos, so I actually had a chance 
to actually develop something over over a longer period of time than something where you've just got eight bars to throw something in. Um, I, I I don't really tend to look at it necessarily from from any of the particular solos that I might or might not have done. Um, there were certain songs, you know, that that I did like that that I you know played on. Um, Thing is, I also would, would talk about this. I ended up, I, I actually kept kept journals and, and records of, of almost all the sessions that I did with him. And over the years, it ended up being somewhere close to 175 recording sessions that, that I did for him and with him over the years. Um, probably 85 to 90% of the recording sessions that I did with him stuff that still has never been released you know um so there's a lot of stuff that i you know i have titles written down on such and such a day we did a song called this i don't know if that song was ever released or whatever and i don't really remember anything about it some things i do remember um there, there was a, a song of his that only was released just recently on the sign of the times this big box set of sign of the times stuff that had just come out doing a lot of unreleased stuff, including the song that once again had probably been bootlegged for years. It was called um, in, in, in a Large Room with No Light. The song was actually written by Wendy and Lisa. I don't know if Prince wrote the lyrics, if they were his lyrics, if they were their lyrics. But we did most of, this, most of the track live, and Sheila was playing drums on it. And it's a song that's very, very different from anything else that I can imagine Prince doing. Um, and it was a really, really cool song. It had nice, nice horn, you know, horn arrangements we put together for it. Um, and I just remember that song was being really cool. Um, I, I like some, I like some of the stuff on the second Madhouse album. Um, you know, some of the solos and some of the things on that. Um, most of the stuff in my private collection that are jam sessions and, and recording sessions that we did of, of just instrumental jams. Um, and if I sit and listen to anything, that's the stuff that I'll pull out and listen to. And it's all instrumental stuff. Nothing that, that would be in a format that would, you know, legitimately be released as, you know, as, as they were just jam sessions. Um, but those are the things that I probably enjoyed most because, <laughs> because it was, those are the situations where I got to play the most. <laughs> so, you know, and, and, spo and spontaneous and. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Which of the tours uh, did you enjoy best? The first one, the parade gigs, for for a variety for a variety of reasons. Um, first of all, from a purely musical standpoint, it was the most spontaneous, um, and it was of the tours that I did with him. It was the only one that was just purely a music concert with no. Um, staging no backstory you know it wasn't theatrical like the like sign of the time like purple sign of the times and particularly the love sexy tour it was just the band coming down on stage playing the music and while we had a basic set list there were audibles you know there were alternative at the point and show there might be an alternative or we might do this we might do that depending on how Prince felt at that moment. And Prince would give us the cue as to which we were going to go into 
you know, we all had that worked out. Said, okay, this is where we're going tonight. And some of the other songs were more open-ended and might go off into different things. Um, and from my side of things, that's what I enjoy more than anything else. Make the gig as spontaneous as you can. That's what, what I, I enjoyed about that. So, so as, as the gigs went, that was, you know, more like that. Um, also, because it was the first one where my role, the role of the horns was still defining itself. So it was still a little bit more up in the air as to what we were doing. So that spontaneity played into that on a nightly basis where Prince might actually throw us something to do on a spontaneous basis. And me and Matt might come up with something to play just like that. And because me and Matt had been playing off and on together for 15 years, we were able to do that. And Prince could rely on this and know that we had his back. So that, you know, that was enjoyable. And also the fact that having been a bar band musician for so many years, we're finally on a stage playing, you know, the big time, whatever in that level. And it was just like, okay, finally I'm on a stage where I can do what I do on, on, on a much bigger level than just, you know, playing in a bar band every night. Was that also was that also your first time traveling to Europe and things like that? Um, professionally, yeah, I, I'd been to Europe before. Just uh, um, actually, I had been to Europe in nineteen summer in nineteen sixty nine, playing with uh, a, a youth symphony orchestra, actually, uh, for a month. But that suffice to say, that kind of touring was substantially substantially different from how we were touring now with Prince. Yeah. So, 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 so there was, there was all of that. Yeah. I find it interesting, Eric, that you would point out that tour um, because that was the one I think of all of them where Prince actually played the least. He was the front man out singing, leading the band, being the band leader and yep. did very little picking up instruments and playing on that tour. I know. I know. He, he would, the only time he was playing guitar is if we would do Purple Rain. And I don't even recall if we necessarily did Purple Rain every night. So, yeah, it, it absolutely was. It, it, it was. it was it was very odd. You know, that was odd, you know, for him as far as people. He he was. Um, there There is another backstory to this that I can't, I can't say with any degree of certainty, but to me, the the coincidences were too great to overlook this. When Paul decided to leave the family, and that's when Prince ostensibly made the decision that I would come over and be a permanent member of his band. He'd add a trumpet. Miko Weaver on guitar, who was going to be the guitar player in the backup band for the family, he came over and now was in, in the band playing guitar along with Wendy. Jerome Benton, Wally Safford, and Greg Brooks, the three singer-dancers, they were in the family. So now all of a sudden, they're now going to be in Prince's band. And it was the first time that Prince now had foils, you know, that he could now play off of when it came to choreography or everything that was going on in the performance. He now had foils, you know, and... The horns were now foil. Everything was a foil now to him. It gave him so much more to play off of than what had just been 
like a, a, just a basic rhythm section band before that. So here's the thing. Around that same time, he was in Nice, France, shooting the movie Under the Cherry Moon. And I went over there to do the video with him for the song America. Um, that he, he was doing a live video that every, you know, all the Prince fans know that. Um, the venue that they did that, around the same time, Kid Creole and the Coconuts was playing at that venue in East France. I was back home in the States. I must tell you that when it came to pop side of music, at that time, Kid Creole was my favorite band in the world. I mean, if there, you know, if you had come to me and said, what band would you like to play in? And I said, that's the band I want to play in. You know, I loved Kid Creole and still do. I mean, that to me was the hippest shit that was going on. So Prince saw Kid Creole in Nice. My brother was there with him and he said, afterwards, Prince was kind of like, you know, I said, why, why did they, you know, Prince was like, why did they play that so long? Why did they do that? Why did they do that? But I also heard it from other people that for days after that, all Prince was talking about was Kid Creole and the Coconuts. I mean, he was familiar with their music, but I don't think he had ever seen them perform. Coincidentally, two weeks later, I finally got a chance to see Kid Creole in L.A. for the first time. And, you know, I was loving their music and I saw them live and said, oh, my God, this is the greatest shit in the world. Because it was camp. You know, I mean, you had to look at it. It was camp. It, the, the character and everything, but the music and the band was just absolutely phenomenal. Just, you know. And the other thing I loved about is that Kid Creole and his band, his music was a quintessential New York band. I mean, it was like that band was New York everything about it and that's a part of the music that i love so much um and they were huge in europe kid curl couldn't get arrested in the states but they were big in europe so all of a sudden all i know is that prince was like apparently really really you know thinking about what he had seen with that band i don't think it's a coincidence that two weeks later he's now got a horn section another guitar player and three singer dancers. Now, no one's going to confuse, you know, Jerome Wally and, and Brooks with with the, the three blonde girls that are the coconuts. But I I am convinced. I never had a conversation with Prince. Never asked him. But I am convinced that at a point in time where Prince is already looking to want to grow musically every aspect of his music and his presentation, he wants it to be more and different than what he had been doing. I have a feeling he saw it, looked at Kid Creole and said, I should have that. I can have that. Why don't I have all of that? And all of a sudden, he's got a horn section, he's got three singer-dancers, and he's presenting his, and particularly Jerome, Kid Creole had the character, the musician Cody Monday, who was a vibes player and a percussion player, who was his main foil, his comic foil. Now Prince had Jerome, who was, of course, his co-star in the movie, Under the Cherry Moon. He's now on stage with him. And I'm sitting, I said, and, and it, didn't, it didn't really even hit me until years later when I thought about that. I said, you know something? Prince saw, Prince saw Kid Creole, and he said, I want something like that. And all of a sudden, boom. 
more of a big yeah. stage review kind of yep. presentation. Yep. And, yep. But of, co of course, uh, Morris and Jerome were doing some of that shtick uh, with the time as yes. well. Yeah. So yep. Um, yep. I think the time being disbanded also kind of. All, all of it played all of it played into that you know certainly but but i i just don't think it was purely coincidental that having just you know sid kid, kid creel from what i understand he was talking a lot about that afterwards and like two or two late so he comes to the band and says okay this is what we're going to be now you know i always wonder if kid creole i never saw them live but uh, i've seen clips i always wonder if they were somewhat influenced by side effect i don't know if you remember that group from the late 70s uh, wayne henderson produced them and they kind of had a little bit of that yeah, yeah, I, I, from what I recall, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. August Darnell, I got to know August you know, Kid Creel. I got to know him a little bit. In fact, in fact, um, in fact, for the the the, the Prince song, um, the sex of it, that was given to uh, Kid Creel. I I did the horn arrangement on that, um, and actually, that was one of my favorite songs. I did a horn arrangement on, not knowing at the time that it was going to end up being sent to kid creole so so it, it got me into kid creole discography and I, I was i was always happy about that so. <laughs> that's funny there's much more to this great truth and rhythm interview just continue on to the next part of the episode also be sure to subscribe to this channel if you've already done so please share it with friends and become a member by joining truth and rhythm on patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net thank you very much Thank you.